our writers using stories to let readers experience climate change without being overwhelmed by it. Climate One conversations feature oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, the exciting and the scary aspects of the climate challenge. I'm Greg Dalton. I don't think I ever really believed we were as secure as we seemed. So in a way, learning about climate was sort of having my worst fears proven by science. Jenny Offal is a writer and novelist whose most recent book of fiction is called Weather. The story follows Lizzie, who works on a podcast about climate change, as she weaves between the daily tasks of parenting a young child and a growing realization that tomorrow will be hauntingly different from today. Jenny says writing the book helped her learn to navigate the uncertainties of the climate crisis. If I'm feeling dread, if I'm feeling fear, if I'm feeling anger, that's good to look directly at and not think that it should be shoved away. Fiction allows us to participate sympathetically in scenarios that would destroy us if we actually lived through them. Royce Granton is professor of English at the University of Notre Dame and a prolific writer whose books include Learning to Die in the Anthropocene and We're Doomed, Now What? Scranton admires Awful for creating fiction that allows readers to confront climate uncertainty while creating enough distance so it doesn't overwhelm them she's able to put it in this amazing aesthetic shape is what lets us go in and feel those feelings. There are feelings, and we can't feel them in our own lives, but by giving them to Lizzie, then we can feel them. And that's worth a great deal. I began my conversation with Jenny Offal and Roy Scranton by asking Jenny how the nonlinear and fragmentary structure of her book, which doesn't read like a regular novel, reflected her own way of thinking. I was interested in writing a book about someone who was grappling with both seemingly everyday mundane things. Um, She works as a librarian and she's a mother and a wife, Um, but also was starting to have more of an expansive sense of uh, what was going on with the climate and a sense of kind of growing emergency. And I decided to write it in this fragmentary form because I wanted to show how these flickers of understanding um, would come in and then go away again. And I also created a lot of different formats for it. So sometimes there's questions and answers in it. Sometimes uh, there's the regular narrative, but there's always white space in between things for, I think of a way for the reader to kind of bring their own train of associations into the story. Yeah, it took me a while to kind of get that format, that fragmented format when I first started reading. And then I was like, oh, now I get it. And there's some really uh, interesting, concise references to uh, hockey stick graphs and the Holocene and other climate terms in there that were really interesting. Um, and how did you come to write a book about two women working on a climate change podcast? Well, one of my best friends, Lydia Millet, is a novelist, and she also works for the Center for Biodiversity in uh, Tucson, which, as you know, is does all sorts of work with uh, endangered species. And for years, she's been talking to me about all of this. Um, We also talk about novels and people we know and everything, but a a sort of creeping sense of of dread was coming into these conversations. And I, at a certain point, I realized that it was switching away from biodiversity to being under the bigger umbrella of climate. And one day I just thought to myself, why do I know this and believe this intellectually, but I don't feel anything? And that began kind of a process of trying to figure out, we all hear about climate denial in the sort of classic sense of someone saying, oh, it's not happening. But to me, there was a much softer form of it, which was, uh, it took sort of two forms. It either took a, well, I haven't really paid that much attention to it. It's something that's going to happen a ways down the road. Or once you look into it and see how dire it is, I think there's another version, which is just very fatalistic. Like it's already gone too far. What is there to do? Um, So I wanted to write about someone navigating that. And I myself had to navigate that when I was writing it. Royce Granton, congratulations on getting a tenure at Notre Dame. Thank you. Um, 
You've written that uh, in one of your books, you wrote, quote, I joined the army so I could write with the authority, not just about war, but about history, love, life, meaning, and truth, noting that George Orwell, Norman Mailer, also went into battle with some sense already wanting to be writers. So how did being a soldier in Iraq to prepare you to be a writer exploring the existential threat of climate change? <laughs> Well, it was something of a romantic delusion. It was like I had drunk the cool, the Hemingway Kool-Aid in a sense and um, bought into this idea that the intensity of existence in war gives a special access to, to human truths. And one of the really important things I, I learned in Iraq uh, was that that's an ideology, right? That that's, it's a romantic ideology. And this was one of the things that that I really that was really important to me to write about after I came back from Iraq was that over and over again I saw the narratives in the culture in American culture focusing on the trauma of of individual American soldiers because that was the story that we knew and that people fixated on was you know how individual American soldiers were sort of torn apart and 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 damaged by the violence that they were a part of which seemed completely uh, a misapprehension of what was actually happening in, in Iraq, which is that thousands and thousands of Iraqis were being killed, were dying, and their country had been just disassembled. And that disparity was a, a powerful inspiration to me, like trying to understand, like, why is there this disparity? What, how, how are the narratives that we come into it different from the reality that's actually happening? And I think that, you know, that difference between narrative and reality um, has been key to my, my thinking about how we understand climate change, right? Trying to make sense of the disparities between the, the ways that we think about climate change um, and what's happening. Um, the other thing I would just say briefly, the more, I guess, quotidian way that um, my time in the military and in Iraq um, has informed my my thinking and approach about climate change is um, is that I saw a, a city and a country um, fall apart under the pressures. I mean, this was a military invasion, a shock and awe, but the sort of cascading failure of what happens socially, politically, when the infrastructure that you depend on the social infrastructure and the actual physical infrastructure that you depend on for day-to-day -day life is is disassembled is is blown apart and it was a an alarming thing to see um you know the invasion was very, it was incredibly violent um but then the the greatest violence during the american occupation during that 10-year period in iraq was actually the civil war the most destructive violence was the fight between um, the, the Sunni and Shia in Baghdad and, and in the rest of the country that American governance sort of allowed and fostered through, in large part, the way that we let the infrastructure collapse and the way that we, the way that we managed that collapse. And so what that has given me is a deep pessimism and skepticism about the capacities of the systems that we live within to be able to manage um, successive catastrophic um, shocks, and then also deep concern about the political consequences of that, right? So, so when th things start to fall apart and people feel increasingly threatened and don't feel like they can depend on, you know, the structures of life that had held us, like, where do, what do people do? Where do they turn to for security and a sense of, of stability? Um, and who, who steps in, right, to take on that role, you know? Cascading yeah. systems collapses. Yeah. Jenny Offill, you, you wrote your book over a period of six years and climate changed a lot. The knowledge of climate, the understanding of climate. You know, how did your thinking and relationship with climate change over the six pe year period that you wrote Weather? Well, in the first year or two of writing it, I think that I became the person that would ruin your dinner party because I basically, um, I had that feeling that I've actually heard other people talk about when they've been sick or had some kind of chronic illness where you kind of can't believe that the world is 
going along in its usual way because uh, there's an emergency. Uh, things are sort of on fire that you know about. But I also have a built-in sort of, I'm, uh, my personality is not very much like a scold. So I wasn't necessarily talking to people about their individual responsibility because I felt like there was a way in which that had been pushed by the um, more powerful interest that this idea of, are you green enough? Do you change your light bulb to the right kind? And there's a way in which that had made me personally feel completely like I couldn't be any kind of activist because I was too much of a hypocrite. And one of the things that was interesting to me was just realizing what a kind of right-wing talking point that is, the cry of hypocrisy, of hypocrisy. So as I got deeper into it, um, in the beginning, I felt like it was very hard when anyone would talk about the future and they would think of it, especially if they were talking about things that had to do with their children or with their own aspirations. I kept thinking the world is going to be so different. It's going to be so many different rolling disasters that you can't count on these things. As I got further into the book, I think I began to feel more hope about collective action. Um, I spent more time studying movements, um, whether it was like the anti-apartheid movement or what felt to me like a somewhat analogous on a smaller scale movement, the ACT UP movement, um, which helped get people to pay attention to the emergency of the AIDS crisis. Um, but in a funny way, being a writer and being a teaching of writing, I already felt like the main job requirement was to be able to tolerate uncertainty because it's a very uncertain uh, profession, but it's also each time you write something, you don't know how it will turn out or what it will be. So one of the things I think, and I think Roy was talking about this, is that both with climate and, and with the crisis we're going through now with the pandemic, I don't think I ever really believed we were as secure as we seemed. I always felt like things could unravel very quickly. Um, so in a way, learning about climate was sort of having my worst fears proven by science, that it could all come apart. And that just like with the Trump administration, we saw to a large degree that um, things that we think of as part of the government, like press conferences, are basically based on a gentleman's handshake and can be dissolved. Um, that's the way I feel about a lot of um, the way we've constructed being so far away from our everyday needs and the idea that we can at any moment just get that out of season tomato or get to where we want to go or all that sort of instantaneous um, gratification that we have in parts of the West. Um, it fell apart very quickly with this and it will fall apart very quickly as climate things uh, continue to come down the pike. So how do you cope with that sense of uncertainty and vulnerability that you said you're not as we're not as secure as we thought we were? Where does that go? How do you sit with that? Well, I think the word sit is an important one here. Um, I'm not a Buddhist, but I'm, drawn to that philosophy in many ways. And I guess as a writer, I feel like Americans, especially, we have an idea that there's good emotions and bad emotions to have. And I think I believe that like, if I'm feeling dread, if I'm feeling fear, if I'm feeling anger, that's good to look directly at and not think that it should be shoved away. So I feel like fear was something that had to be gone through to think more clearly about what I could do. Um, and of course, it was a very silly thing, ultimately. I mean, I would come out of my study and say to my husband, well, I'm so glad I solved climate change by writing this novel. <laughs> it just seems like such a totally idiotic thing to do. But I, I kept thinking about how, well, that's the thing that I know how to do best. And um, a lot of the climate change literature that was out there, some of it works very well, but it's existing often in a dystopian sphere. And I wanted to kind of write a pre-apocalyptic novel. Like, what's it like to have that be your companion right now? People all over the world who live in less secure circumstances than us uh, 
live with that kind of dread and insecurity in their daily lives. And I was like, it's coming here now. So I started reading what people did in other times of great trouble, whether it was during sieges, whether it was, I read a lot about Sarajevo, read a lot about Leningrad. Um, and I was sort of heartened to see that music and reading and continuing to practice sort of decent values, whether it's giving a little last bit of something to your neighbor or not. That's how people have always made it through, not through these silos of dread or individual bunkers. You're listening to a Climate One conversation about storytelling through the climate crisis. Coming up, living with and writing about an uncertain future. We're talking about something that is at this point completely unknowable. We can't know what that world will look like and who we will be and what will be important to us when we get there. That's up next when Climate One continues. Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. Sponsorship for this podcast is from the new book, Cranky Uncle vs. Climate Change, an illustrated guide on how to talk to climate deniers. Dr. John Cook, founder of the website Skeptical Science, takes us on an educational tour through the world of climate disinformation. He provides insightful and often humorous tips for debunking popular myths. Our listeners ask me all the time how to talk to climate change deniers. Now I can suggest a copy of Cranky Uncle vs. Climate Change. It's a funny and informative read for people of all ages and great preparation for those holiday dinners with your own cranky uncle. Changing people's minds is a difficult task, but identifying and preventing the spread of misinformation with proven data and scientific evidence can be just as important. Pick up your copy of Cranky Uncle vs. Climate Change today everywhere books are sold. For more information, visit crankyuncle.com. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and we're talking about how writers and novelists can help us make sense of climate change with Roy Scranton, author of We're Doomed, Now What?, and Jenny Offal, author of the new novel, Weather. Jenny's protagonist, Lizzie, is a Ph.D. dropout librarian who's helping her former mentor, Sylvia, on a climate change podcast. In one especially poignant scene, with Lizzie sitting at the table as her young son tries all his colored markers to see which ones work, Jenny writes that according to the current trajectory, New York City will begin to experience dramatic, life-altering temperatures by 2047. I asked her about juxtaposing this beautiful moment, sitting with a child who is coloring, something every parent can identify with, with a jaw-dropping statistic about what's coming. About halfway through the book, I decided, okay, I was reading so much nonfiction, um, and as you know, reading climate, sometimes there can be almost a thicket of statistics that you have to get through to get to anything else. Of course, it's all important, but I have noticed that when I give these books to people, they often don't make it past the first chapter because of that. So I made a rule for myself as a novelist. I said, no numbers. I'm not going to put numbers in. And then I decided I was going to put that number in um, because it was the number that happened to cause my, oh my God, moment. Um, when I put my daughter's birth date into one of those climate things and saw how much it was going to go up and when we were going to um, leave the historical record. Um, supposedly, it's probably faster than that now. But one of the things that I think about when we talk about sort of hope and despair with climate is that I think that the reason all of the talk about hope always sounds kind of thin it's not because it doesn't exist, but because it's very particular to each person. For one person, it may be that they are going to garden. For another person, it may be that they're going to be doing many more things in their community to help others. For another person, it may be that they sing in a choir or study mystic thought. This doesn't mean that we're supposed to um, not think collectively. But I think in the same way, when someone's telling you about someone they've fallen in love with, 
And there could be this sort of moment where you're thinking, okay, I guess that is really amazing that they have a blue sweater, or I don't know why it's so particular that the fact that this person bird watches makes you love them. But I feel like when we're looking for things against this backdrop of kind of ambient doom, what brings joy, what brings solace is very, it's, it's not transferable necessarily on a wide scale. Um, But it is about this sitting and pause and recognizing what we need and what we don't. I feel like it's a, it's very awkward in the beginning stages of learning a new way to live. Um, Right now, everyone's awkwardly trying to learn to zoom. Everyone's awkwardly trying to visit at six feet apart, but humans adapt. That's what we do. And, um, and I do think that some of these trial runs we're having during this terrible time may be of use later when we also don't have what we think is enough or a bounty. All right. This could be a uh, yeah, practice for the, the adaptation to come regarding climate change. Royce Grant, you say how literature can take people into a place that Jenny mentioned the the fact-dense, well-intentioned uh, nonfiction books. And I've interviewed many authors, a lot of them on this radio show and podcast. Uh, but I think they have limits about how they, they reach people. And, and literature can, can take people to a place that nonfiction can't. So tell us about how literature can help us ease us into climate reality. Well, I think fiction has a special uh, dispensation, uh, as it were, when it, when it comes to human thought and and interaction um which is that uh it allows us to participate sympathetically in scenarios that would destroy us if we actually lived through them you know we can watch you know king lear or we can um read a dystopian novel or we can read you know whatever and we we part of what's happening there is we're I, we're identifying with the protagonist, but we're also distant or there's some estrangement there. We're also thinking about the protagonist as sort of as someone else, right? And so there's this duality going on that, that allows us to feel the emotions opened up by this narrative form and this, this story um, while also not feeling entirely overwhelmed by them. And I think that's an incredible thing that um, that fiction can do um, particularly with narrative. Um, I think both fiction and literary nonfiction are able to take the facts uh, and data and analyses and, and reportage of, of journalism and science and, and what have you. And they're able to articulate those in ways that we can relate to not only in terms of strictly narrative, in terms of identification with the protagonist, but also it through um, through form, through aesthetic form, to shape a, a, an emotional experience that can give us access to things that that we can't handle <laughs> in our in our day to day lives. Um, and I think that's one of the incredible things about about weather, about Jenny's book, um, is that it does that for the life we're living now. Right. It's a, it's part of the reason I think it's such a remarkable achievement is because it's um, it, it allows us to feel the things going on in our lives that we we can't feel right now because it's too much. If you live in constant with constant consciousness of the trajectory that the that the world is on and and our individual powerlessness in the face of these massive geological and and climatological forces and the the immense obstacles faced by any kind of collective organization against you know to to try to change things just like if you if you really if you're really there all the time and you think about how massive climate change and ecological catastrophe are you would weep you would shut down you just we it's it's too much to live with all the time we're nevertheless aware of it, and that that dichotomy, that that um, 
estrangement is what gives Jenny's book its, it seems like its form and that she's able to put it in this amazing aesthetic shape is what lets us go in and feel those feelings. There are feelings and we can't feel them in our own lives, but by giving them to Lizzie, right, then we can, we can feel them. Um, and, and that that's worth a great deal. If you're just joining us, we're talking about storytelling through the climate crisis with two writers, Jenny Offal and Roy Scranton. I'm Greg Dalton. Jenny Offal, you said that you kind of play the doom role in your friend group. I'm curious how becoming climate conscious has changed who you can really talk to. Well, uh, yeah. the, re- the reason I met Roy originally um, is that I read some tiny little thing about basically a group of people gathering to have climate discussions. And this was five or six years ago. And it was very unlike me um, because I I can be kind of introverted, but I I figured out because I'm a good researcher (laughs) who was running this thing. And I wrote a note and asked if I could come. And it, I met a lot of people there that I didn't keep going to this thing, but I met some science writers. I met Roy, I met other people. And, um, it was such a relief to be around other people that were not spinning it as um, better than it was. We're not uh, tacking on that obligatory note of hope, um, but we're talking about what can we do with what is the actual reality. But I will say this particular pandemic has really shown me that I didn't know, no matter how many rehearsals for disaster I did in my head, no matter how many versions I had of what might go wrong, this was not the one that I um, was thinking about. And so I think it's a really kind of a welcome humility in that, in not understanding um, that this, all these preparations, all these wishes, uh, um, we're still just best at doing the things that that humans have always done to get through trouble, which is to huddle together with other people to try to help people that need it, but also to try to prepare yourself in terms of your inner strength. I think that I started the book reading a lot about preppers, material prepping, and I came to find that very um, sort of immoral by the end of it, the idea that you would somehow cut yourself off from others. But I did become very interested in the idea of um, emotional and spiritual prepping. And there's a line towards the end of the book, which comes from these monks um, and Greek Orthodox monks. And it says they're asked what they do all the day. And they say, we have died and we are in love with everything. And I feel like I want to keep both those things in my head at the same time. And I want to talk to more people about it because oddly about a year ago, I read the plague (laughs) and I was just reading it in terms of climate stuff, because there's a really interesting idea in there that he attributes to the doctor. It's active fatalism. And Camus talks about active fatalism as um, fumbling forward in the dark, trying to do good and not knowing if it will work. And that's where I am. I feel like I don't know that it will work. It's actually hubris to know what will work. But I also want to do that fumbling forward. Um, And I found more ways to do that since I wrote this novel and more um, just so many interesting people working on different parts of this question and problem. And the truth is, I think we all know who've been studying it for a while there is more consciousness about it now. There is more of a sense of people that never were interested in it, uh, looking at it a little bit. And the research is pretty clear after disaster is the best thing people can do is have neighbors who care about you and have community. That's the key to resilience versus, uh, you know, a a cave in New Zealand or something as a lot of climate people think and talk about. Yeah, Juan, it's that it's the community, people who care about you. And maybe COVID is teaching us something about that, if the the importance of that. Um, Roy, you've, you know, wrote a book, We're Doomed, Now What? Uh, and, and talk about kind of going into the grief and into the darkness. I'd like to hear your response to what Jenny just said. One thing that that definitely seems worth thinking more about is um, the unknowingness 
that we find ourselves in and, and how fundamental that is to our, our condition. Um, another Buddhist idea. Yeah. Yeah. Another Buddhist idea. Um, and that idea of, uh, you know, that Jenny was talking about of, of trying to do, of, I forget, active fatalism of trying yeah. to do good in this kind of stumbling way in the darkness that seems in some ways the best that we can do right now is to emphasize the unknowability of the future and commit nevertheless to some kind of ethical action in that unknowingness. Many climate advocates will say, no, we got to bend the curve. Know. You know, this is the, they want to construct yeah. a future. <laughs> they they want to, and the scientists can tell us something about the future, but yeah. if you want to solve climate change, you don't say, I don't know. You said you got to sell a, create a plan and sell it and build action around it. This is the question of, of the old world and the new world as it were. Right. Um, the science, science, uh, scientific reports are increasingly, warning, um, especially over the past year, that we're in a period of, of real uncertainty as to um, the inevitability of, of massive, abrupt, catastrophic tipping points. Um, we don't know whether or not there's enough time to keep the entire global climate and ecosystem from tipping into um, a rapidly accelerating transformations uh, and 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 uh, regime shifts. Uh, we simply don't know. It might already be too late. But even if it's not too late, right, even if there is still a chance, nevertheless, right, the world that we live in, the, the human world that we live in is impossible. We can't go on living the way that we live with dependence on fossil fuel capitalism, even in the most utopian possibility, what we're talking about is a global revolution in, in human civilization, right? What we're talking about is a complete transformation on the other side of which we can't actually know what that would look like. You know, we, we'd be talking about something that would make the cultural revolution in China look like a momentary burp, right? We're talking about something that would make the industrial revolution look like a minor event, right? We were talking about a gl rapid global transformation in human values and energy infrastructure and political systems. I mean, this is what, you know, scientists for the IPCC or the IPBES or these, you know, other organizations are telling us is necessary in order to, right, be able to, to get off the trajectory we're on. So that's the best case scenario. So even in that scenario, we're talking about the end of the world as we know it and, and the emergence of something entirely new. Um, so even in that case, um, we don't know, like, even if we're entirely committed to a renewable post carbon future, sustainable in some way, still dealing with significant global warming and its effects, which is already baked into the system. Right. But, but potentially, you know, flattening the curve, as it were, of warming and giving us more time to adapt. Even that scenario, we're talking about something at, that is at this point completely unknowable, right? We, we can't know what that world will look like and who we will be and what will be important to us when we get there. You're listening to a conversation about storytelling our way through the climate crisis. This is Climate One. Coming up, what kinds of fiction do writers read? The main writer that I like to read about climate is Joy Williams. Newt Rasmussen's transcriptions of Inuit folktales. I read my friend Lydia Millet. There was a book uh, Vanessa Vaselka published a few years ago. You can just reread Rilke. <laughs> That's up next when Climate One continues. Hey, Climate One fans, we have some exciting news. We are now on Patreon. That means that you, as a subscriber, can get access to Climate One episodes free of ads interrupting your listening experience. For just $5 a month, your Patreon membership also gets you access to our Climate One Discord channel, where you can discuss the episode with other Climate One fans and begin to build your own climate community. 
Best of all, your support makes future Climate One episodes possible. Join us today at patreon.com slash climate one. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. We're talking about how writing and fiction can help us cope with climate anxiety with Roy Scranton, professor of English at the University of Notre Dame, and Jenny Offal, author most recently of Weather. I asked Jenny what other works of art or literature on climate have inspired her. For me, there's, uh, I would say, the main writer that I like to read who's a fiction writer um, about climate is Joy Williams. I think she's been writing on environmental things for uh, 30 years, but her fiction is incredibly intricate. She wrote a series of books called 99 Stories About God, and each of them kind of is like a little environmental fable. Can I read it? It's like one paragraph. Okay. The Lord was in a den with a pack of wolves. You really are so intelligent, the Lord said, and have such glorious eyes. Why do you think you're hounded so? It's like they want to exterminate you. It's awful. Well, sometimes it's the calves and the cows, the wolves said. Oh, those maddening cows, the Lord said. I have a suggestion. What if I caused you not to have a taste for them anymore? It wouldn't matter. Then it would be the deer or the elk. Have you seen those bumper stickers on the hunter's trucks? Did a wolf get your elk? I guess I missed that, the Lord said. Sentiment is very much against us down here, the wolf said. I'm so awfully sorry, the Lord said. Thank you for inviting us to participate in your plan anyway, the wolf said politely. The Lord did not want to appear addled, but what was the plan his sons were referring to exactly? I like that because she often talks about the human impact on animals and on lands that were um, taken over for human purpose. But in her novels and in her short stories, she ranges across like this whole world of theology and ideas of existentialism and whatever to bring it back in to a story. So I, I read her. I read my friend uh, Lydia Millet who wrote a trilogy called um, like Magnificent, Ghost Lights, How the Dead Dream. And all of these are about what it's like to truly um, engage with the non-human uh, beings among us. And I think to me, that's a pretty underexplored thing in fiction, not so much in nonfiction. There's lots of interesting writing about it, but um, that's something that I feel like I'm going into kind of a new territory when I read. And there was an author who tweeted recently that she's reading, read your book, Weather, and you said you had what, heart palpitations? <laughs> oh, well, that's, I, I hope that's, I hope that's good. <laughs> Yeah, we're, I'm, I'm trying to knock them dead. That's my that's my theory. Um, yeah, so those that's who I read. But I mostly read. Um, I got to say, I mostly read poetry and philosophy and psychology and so- sociology to to get a bigger. Um, I put together like a list of the sort of things I'd found called tips for trying times um, that I put on my website. So that's mostly what I'm reading now. What about you, Roy? Well, on that on the question of the sort of human non human interaction, one one uh, something I like to teach uh, and has been in my thoughts about climate change since I read it is Newton Rasmussen's transcriptions, I guess, uh, of of Inuit folk tales. Um, it's a tiny little book, um, and it's got just like a hundred and fifty or something, um, rel- mostly relatively short. Uh, Inuit folk tales that were transcribed as, you know, the people in Greenland uh, and Canada were being forced into literacy and education. Um, and there's an amazing, you know, they, so they were coming, they came down from the oral tradition and uh, it's just, there's an amazing quality of the language and of metamorphosis at work in these stories that has something both profoundly strange and intimately familiar to it. Um, so I really like that. Um, I have another, one of those in in weather. Did you notice it? I did. I in fact, yeah. yeah, I did. I don't. It's called when houses were alive. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly. So you, that's right. Um, yeah. There's one of those in weather. That's exactly what I'm talking about, and that story too has that quality. 
it's like the flickering between the human and the non-human and the sense that in this world, it's not seen as so separated. That, right. That, like, yeah. Right. That there isn't a real division. There's still sorts of ontological divisions or whatever, but they're not, it's not in that way, right? The human and the non-human like are all human in a way or, or whatever. They're all spirit um, in, in, a, in a similar way. Um, yeah, which is, I find really provocative and, and persistently um, profound and inspirational. Uh, there was a book uh, Vanessa Vaselka published a few years ago called Zazen, which is, uh, I only read it a, about a year ago, I think, but um, I thought it was one of the most interesting um, and, you know, deeply like immersive um, explorations of, you know, some of these, these political questions about like, how far is your, how far does your commitment go in terms of environmental politics? And like, how does that relate to your own individual relationship to the world and to the natural world? And how do all these things mesh together? I mean, I could come up and with we could all just we could all just all reread day, but... you could just reread Rilke. <laughs> yeah. Um, right. And I just read I just taught to my class um this book by uh it's called Crow with No Mouth by Ikyu. Mm -hmm. Um okay. and it's like he was this sort of very uh well he was a monk a Zen monk, but also um, lived quite the high life of going to whorehouses and drinking a lot. So it has a very interesting kind of uh, merging of the so-called sacred and profane. And it's so funny and sort of, it, it's, it's a really good book. We're talking on Climate One with Jenny Offal and Roy Scranton, two writers and English professors, about how storytelling can help us through the climate crisis. As we get to the end, you both have two daughters. I want to ask you how you talk to children about climate change. Jenny, I saw you on the Seth Meyers show recently with some very clever references for how people think about preparing their children. You talked earlier about the emotional and spiritual preparedness versus the physical preparedness. But how do you talk to children about preparing them for the future we've been discussing? Well, I think when I... Uh, there's, there's a line uh, that I put in Weather, which actually was something that this guy I know who's been an environmentalist for many years told me. I asked him the same question about his six-year-old at the time. And he said, well, it'd be good if he had some skills. And I, I said, what do you mean? And he said, oh, you know, he just, he, it, things are going to fall apart. He's going to need more skills. So I thought a lot about that afterwards. And for a while, I was kind of thinking like, I, I, I made a joke about it on TV, but I was thinking like, does she, is it about physical prowess? Is it about um, like knowing how to build things, all this kind of bushcraft stuff? But ultimately, I felt like um, what I wanted to do was give as much as possible an example in my own life of how you can furnish your mind for hardship by reading widely and trying to build emotional intelligence because i mean if there were a real doomstead nobody would let me in skill wise i don't have any skills i have zero skills um the only way i could come in is if i was um practicing my disaster psychology or fake shrinkery or just noticing whose eyes looked like they had gotten really uh weird over the last few days of living together or so i feel like that kind of sensitivity to a range of feeling is a form of adaptability that we don't talk about because however we're going to live through this next unforeseen time most of us are not going to live completely alone and being able to understand i keep saying to people that are writing me about the fights they're having at home i'm, I'm like everybody's just cracking up in a different way. Like one person is like, we can only eat the freeze dried food. One person is like, um, you know, eating all of what they have the first day. Another person is like exercising maniacally. It's like, I think a feeling of kind of um, tenderheartedness towards the humans that are struggling each in their own way to um, survive these very difficult times is maybe what I would try to give her. 
And on, on the Seth Meyers show, you made a reference to archery, which evoked, of course, the image of the Hunger Games. <laughs> right. No, my, my joke, which I never saw, but my joke was that these all these rich women would talk about teaching their uh, kids should learn Mandarin. And I'd be like, oh, no, archery. <laughs> but I told her also my one tip was that you should, yeah, you should keep chewing gum because supposedly that makes you... Um, your brain thinks that things are normal because if you could be chewing gum, then you're not like running away from some predator. Roy, how do you talk about climate and with vulnerable young children? Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, my daughter's only, she turns three in June. So, yeah, so there's some ways, there's some, some ways in which the, these conversations, like they're not fully emergent yet. Um, I do think about uh, some of the things Jenny was talking about particularly uh, this kind of uh, spiritual and psychological resilience and adaptability, given the unknowingness that we're in, the radical un unknowability of the future, you know, just trying to raise a, a good person who is able to, you know, be ethical and be flexible and, and adaptable is a major I don't know, goal or disposition. Also maybe archery. Um, <laughs> um, it's funny though, the COVID ec epidemic has, uh, has made more manifest some of the challenges of talking about what's going on because I'm trying to explain coronavirus to my daughter and why we have to do social distancing, you know, and, and these different things. Not that I, I don't take her to the grocery store, but like if we go to a, a park, you know, like why we have to stay away from everybody uh, and trying to explain these things is challenging. And also we just had Passover here and uh, it was her first like conscious Passover, right? Um, you know, where she, we could talk about it. And that was, that I found quite challenging as well. The um, plagues. Yeah, we have plagues. The like God striking dead the firstborn, yeah. like yeah, I remember all that. I was heavy, like, mm, yeah, heavy, heavy stuff. Even just like explaining slavery and and you know, yeah, Passover's a it's a rough one for the it, for the little kids. <laughs> it is, and and it's you know, and this is this is history. This is human history, and this is the present, and this is the future, and this is um, these are the things that are hard to explain. You know, it may be, it will be, I'm sure, difficult to explain. Uh, I don't know the the slowdown of the North Atlantic meridional oscillation when we get to that point, right? Or maybe her science teacher can do that. Um, Just tell her that though, because she'll be so <laughs> bored when you're talking about it that all terror will go right. away. Yeah, yeah, maybe that's it too. Is is just to keep talking about it, but it's it's sort of figuring out how to talk about those things that have always been hard to talk about with, with kids. How, how do we talk about death? How do we talk about loss? How do we talk about grief? How do we talk about justice? How do we talk about compassion? Um, those are the, those are the challenges and, and climate change doesn't make them new. It just puts them a little bit more, puts right now a little bit more. And as we go on increasingly at the forefront of, of what we're talking about and, you know, how do we, how do we articulate our own struggles, right, to our children without pretending that it's all going to be okay, or that we know the answers or that they don't have anything to worry about, right? Um, well, I this think, is one time that history really does have a lot of examples for us, because yeah, most people didn't, they had to tell their children because of child mortality rates, or because of, you know, even just in the Victorian era, Right. Um, you know, you can read about some famous person and then it'll say that, you know, five of their eight children died or something. So there was more of a sense when death was at home um, of you couldn't keep it from them, even if you wanted to. Um, you couldn't keep this dark stranger at the door from knocking. But now that there's a more, I think, you know, some of the sociologists call it like a managed death um, yeah. in the same way we don't slaughter our own chickens, most of us, if we right. eat them. Um, so I think that what's going to happen is it's going to go closer to how people used to live right up close Absolutely. to uh, sickness and, and death. Um, 
I have found as a parent, though, that you have very good intentions about telling the truth. And then sometimes you're completely um, caught off guard. And, and then I just blurt out something crazy. Like when she <laughs> first, when, when Theodore first asked me about uh, if she was going to die and if I was going to die and what happened if I died, was I gone forever? I just said, uh, well, they're, uh, they've made a lot of improvements in uh, cryogenetics. <laughs> Which I don't believe at all. Well, I just yeah. Said this, I mean, yeah. You you just want to be yeah. able to answer that it's not. Gonna be, <laughs> I'm just like, oh, I'll live yeah. forever. Jenny Offal, as you were prepared, writing a book about a host of a climate podcast, did you listen to climate podcasts and which ones? What was I've research? listened to yours before, and I've listened to one called EcoShock, mm-hmm. uh, which was um, a very doomy one that I listened a- to. Early guy up on. in Vancouver. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. he he's um he really makes us all look like uh, sunny optimists. Right. <laughs> so that was one of my entry points in. Um, I listened to uh, what I did more was like I would find someone that I was interested in, and then I would listen to them going on a show, um, and talking. So sometimes that would be I was interested also in people who did like climate change um, communications. Like George Marshall is a British writer who wrote a sure. book called Don't Even Think About It, which I thought was really useful. Yeah, um, it impacted my thinking a lot. Yeah, me too. And I did listen to, um, yeah, I, I listened to a lot of the people who've just been doing the work for a long time. You know, it's I'm, I'm such a, a newbie to this. And there are people that have been um, just making really interesting, informative stuff for 15 years about it, it seems to me. So that's what I've been listening to. I also follow pretty closely um, things that the Center for uh, Biodiversity does. Um, and so I've, I've followed their sort of uh, the things that have to do with land use and animals um, from their podcasts. Right. Land use uh, is something that's connected to the cause of, uh, of COVID, you know, deforestation encroaching into Absolutely. tropical areas. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you very much for for your time. I look forward to speaking with you both again. Great. Thanks, Greg. You've been listening to a conversation about storytelling through the climate crisis with novelist Jenny Offal, whose books include Last Things, Department of Speculation, and most recently, Weather. And Roy Scranton, professor of English at the University of Notre Dame and author of Learning to Die in the Anthropocene and We're Doomed, Now What? To hear more Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other major platforms. Please help us get people talking more about climate by giving us a rating or review. It really does help spark the conversation. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. Sarah Catherine Coxon is the strategy and content manager. Steve Fox is director of advancement. Devin Strolovich edited the program. Our audio team is Mark Kirshner, Arnav Gupta, and Andrew Stelzer. Dr. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton. Hey, Climate One fans. We've all gotten used to a subscription model for paying for the things we really value. Here at Climate One, it's no different. We produce this show every week for free, and now we're offering you an opportunity to get our show free of ads. For just $5 per month, you can join us on Patreon and get access to our episodes free of ads and get access to our exclusive Climate One Discord channel. That allows you to discuss the episode with other Climate One fans and begin to build your own climate community. Best of all, your support makes future Climate One episodes possible. Join us today at patreon.com slash climate one.